You are listening to a sermon from Covenant Hope Church. Thank you for engaging with us. If you would like more information about our church family, please visit www.covenanthope.church. We pray that this sermon encourages and challenges you today. Good morning, church. If you have a Bible, grab it. Turn to Psalm chapter 1. Guess my name is Cody. I'm one of the pastors here and have the opportunity to open up the scriptures for us regularly and love to do so. And if you are a guest, let me just say welcome. We are so glad that you are here this morning, and we are excited to walk through Psalm 1. We normally preach through books of the Bible because we desire to uh, hear what God has to say, and not hear what I have to say or Pastor Ryan has to say, but hear from God. And we believe that in His Word, He has revealed Himself to us. And so we are going to start a new series, uh, as Pastor Ryan said, in uh, the book of Psalms. We've picked 11 Psalms for this summer that we're going to walk through together. And those are going to be around a few different themes of praising God. They're going to be around confessing sin, thanksgiving, and supplication. And as we come to Psalm 1 today, what we're really asking of the Lord is for us to be the kind of people that this psalm describes. And so each week as we walk through these psalms, you, you hopefully we, you see that these are tied in which our prayer time and these psalms work together. And if you don't have a Bible, you can grab one, uh, one of the black ones in front of you and turn to page 472. If you do not have a Bible at home, we would love for you to take this Bible uh, and read it and read along with us. As we start this morning, uh, I couldn't help but think of gardening. I know that some of you, I know Miss Deborah, ha, uh, if you uh, go down Capitol, you see uh, Deborah and Doug's house, you're going to see a beautiful lawn and, and garden of flowers that Doug and Deborah take care of. And maybe, maybe Deborah has Mr. Doug uh, working hard uh, in that lawn and those flowers. But if you drive by, it's wonderful, it's beautiful, but it takes a lot of work to see uh, uh, the fruit of their labor and how they uh, work hard at that. I know that many of you uh, others have, have flower gardens. Uh, some of you may grow vegetables, so you know the, the difficulty that growing a garden takes. I grew up, my father uh, had a, a garden, and he actually uh, as well would work during the summer and come home, and uh, we would tend to the garden, and for a long time we, we planted uh, potatoes and uh, green beans and different things like that, but for the potatoes we would have to go out and we had to dig up the potatoes and so for a, for most half of my childhood I would dread the, the point in time in summer which I'd have to go dig up the potatoes. One of the greatest days in our household was when my dad bought his tractor and bought uh, this attachment that they would just come by and just dig up all the potatoes and so finally I didn't have to dig up any potatoes anymore. That was fantastic and so as I watched my father what I saw was that it took a lot of hard work and intentionality to actually grow a garden. We, we just didn't, we didn't just like haphazardly walk out there one day and say, oh, those are, those are peppers growing. Oh, those are green beans. No, there, there was intentionality by the gardener who placed those things there, who planted those things. And it took a lot of work and care for those things to grow. And what we see in a garden is that we, we see that there has to be a gardener and there also has to be a place of nourishment, an environment in which these things can grow. Right? We had to make sure, my dad had to spray and make sure that all these things were taken care of so that, so that the deer and the bugs and all the other things didn't come and take away from the environment that these, uh, the produce was going to grow in. Just like that garden uh, that 
my dad has and some of you have, we know that our God is a master gardener, that he has planted us in this world in which we now get to live. And, and some of us have experienced prospering, some of, some of us have experienced difficulty, but either way, God is working in a world in which he is the master gardener. And this idea, this theme of a garden, we're going to see here in Psalm 1. And so as we walk through the text this morning, here's, the, here's what we're going to see. The psalmist describes two ways of thinking and living. Righteousness leads to blessing, but wickedness leads to ruin. Wickedness leads to ruin. Now, if you are a disciple today, if you have called on the name of Jesus and you are trying to walk with him, which is what we talk about as a church, that we want to make mature disciples. And so when we come to a psalm like this, what should we do? Well, the choice of blessing or ruin stands ever before God's people. It stands ever before us. Do we want to choose blessing or ruin? Which will we choose today? And so as we start here in the Psalms, our prayer together is that we will be people that not only have Christ as our righteousness, but then actually work ourselves to look more like Jesus. We must actively choose as disciples to walk in righteousness just like the garden it does not haphazardly happen we have to pursue it we have to meditate on God's instruction we have to choose righteousness by giving ourselves to the hard work of becoming like Christ but we are not alone we have a God a gardener who is helping cultivate us into the image of his son and that is the hope that we have today so as we walk through Psalm 1, as, we, as an introduction to the book and as an introduction to Psalm 1, here are a couple of thoughts that I want you to know. Psalm 1 is the introduction to the Psalter. You may not have ever heard that word. It's just the word for the Psalms as a whole, or we may say the Psalms. So it's an introduction to the Psalm. And what we see here is that wisdom is rooted in God's Word. Wisdom is rooted in the law and the commands and the instructions that He gives. We don't find wisdom outside of anything else. Wisdom is found in God's Word, which is why we come and preach it every Sunday. Psalm 1 is also a gateway for us to understand the Psalms as a whole. Right? It may be the first seed in the garden, if you will, for us to be planted in and actually meditate on. So we're supposed to read and sing and pray the Psalms. Right, so the Psalms were Israel's uh, songbook. They were also Israel's uh, prayer book. These were many prayers that had been written. There were songs that had been written to God, and they're recorded. We believe that God was actually working in and through these Psalms and had revealed Himself to us. And we view these Psalms as instructive for our lives. They are transforming and powerful. They, we don't come to these as just songs that that we sing every week, but there are songs that actually help us understand who God is. But they also show us the messiness of life. The power of the Psalms is not that they present us with a neat and theological consistent package of, of a view that we just to say, yes, I'm, I'm good with that. Instead, they confront us with the messiness of life and the conflict of life 
and death and what it looks like to actually live our lives in a broken world. Right? How do we live in a real world with bodies and minds and spirits? Right? So we as a people, we allow God's Word to penetrate our hearts so deeply that it divides us, as the writer of Hebrews would say, soul, bone, and marrow. And so what it does is it lays bare our contradictions. What we believe, what we think about the world, what we think about ourselves, the Psalms open up to us and show us who God is and who we are in light of that. And so we come to the Psalms, it's going to encourage us to approach these Psalms, come to the throne of grace that Jesus stands before us and we can come and know Him and trust Him and He will embrace us. That's what the Psalms teach us. And that we find mercy and grace in our times of need in our times of joy in times of difficulty we know that there is a God who is listening to us pray and sing to him and so this morning here's what I want to do as we walk through Psalm 1 I want to show you three truths about the righteous of God about those who follow after God what do they look like three truths this morning so number one The righteous ponder God's word over the world's wickedness. The righteous ponder God's word. Look there at verse 1. How happy is the one who does not walk in the advice of the wicked or stand in the pathway with sinners or sit in the company of mockers. Psalm 1 opens up with this idea of happiness. Many of our translations, though, will translate the word happy as blessed. I think there are multiple factors that play into this while we have uh, these two different words. Number one, our word happy can be undervalued or oversold. Right? And two, blessing denotes something that comes from outside of ourselves. Right? Can you earn a blessing? No. If you earn it, it becomes a wage. It's no longer a blessing. A blessing is by its very nature, it has to, do, has to be a gift. Right? It's unearned and undeserved. And also, can you bless yourself? Not really. Right? Not in any meaningful way. You can serve yourself, love yourself, but you can't bless yourself. Right away, we see that what in Psalm 1, we see that God is actively working. It is a grace in our lives for Him to bless us. Right? It is undeserved favor with a God who has given everything, His own Son, for, for us. And to be honest, I think this word happy actually helps us understand what's happening in the passage. It's the best word when we understand that happiness is not something based on our circumstances and that blessing is not something that we actually do for ourselves, but that when we find happiness, it's in God and in what He says. So we understand that those who are happy find their happiness in God. Now notice when this happiness takes place when someone does not. Right, the psalmist gives us a negative to highlight the point. We are to avoid these three actions that he describes. We are not to walk, we're not to stand, and we're not to sit. Right, we, we are not to learn like these other people do. We're not to receive counsel. We're not to receive advice from sinners. We're not to walk down the same pathway, the same way of life. We're not to live like these people. We're not to accompany, accompany them, which means we're not to dwell with them. We're not to come in and enjoy them. We're not to come in and sit with them. 
No, the happy one is, is the one who rejects these three things. An author I read this week said that these three actions are in the realm of thinking, behaving, and belonging. It is a life immersed and focused with all those who oppose God. Now let me be clear. The psalmist is not telling us to hide away in our safe little bunkers. That's not what he's saying. The, the psalmist is not warning us to stay away from sinners because he knows that sinners need the gospel and without us to share the gospel, then they will never know the gospel. This is not a warning for us not to have friends who are non-Christians, which is a part of loving our neighbor. The psalmist warns us about thinking, behaving, and belonging like someone who opposes God. That we don't adopt their behavior. Yes, we can be friends with, we can talk to, but we are not adopting their thinking, their behaving, or their belonging. The application for us is to ask this question. Where does our allegiance lie? Where does our allegiance lie? And you may say, that's an odd question, but let me, let me ask it this way. What are you most concerned with? What are you most concerned with? What are the things in this world that get you riled up, that get you frustrated, or make you happy, or get you low? That's where your allegiance lies. If we are frustrated about the world, if we are, are sad, depressed about what is going on, then our allegiance, our, our hope, is in something other than God and His Messiah. What bothers you to no end? Now, the happy person, the psalmist turns to the positive. Look at verse 2. Instead, his delight is in the Lord's instruction, and he meditates on it night and day. Right? His delight is in the instruction of the Lord. This word delight means to desire, to take pleasure in, to long for, to ponder. Right? The happy one does not seek wisdom from the wicked but yearns for God's instruction. This word instruction literally means a Torah, which is the first five books of the Bible, but we understand that as the law, God's instruction, God's direction. Right? We can, we can see this, and we, in, in light of, of the Bible that we hold, we see this as all of the Scriptures. Happiness comes from God as He has provided direction for what true human flourishing looks like, what it means to be human, what it means to worship God, what it means to love God, what it means to love others. There are all kinds of ways in this world that it tries to tell you how to flourish. Be true to yourself. Follow your heart. Those are lies. Those are lies. Because God has made you for a purpose. God has designed you uniquely to have a purpose in this life that's not that's not something outside. It's not out there. God knows, and you have been made in a way to know Him and therefore give your life to Him and then actually express that by loving others. God has made it very clear that we know that He has given us the direction that we should go. But if we're honest, when we come to God's Word, it can contradict the what we think and what we like and what we want to do. And we must come and submit ourselves to God's word and to hear it and let it wash over us and to let it shape us. Here's why. For the psalmist, our minds are the key here. Our minds are key. What are we surrounding ourselves with? 
What has influence over you? What are you constantly thinking about? That's what the psalmist is concerned with. Are you concerned more with God's word or more with other things? Now, what is meditation? Most of us think of monks and they've got their legs crossed and they're humming, right? That's what we normally think about when we think of meditation. That's not what the psalmist uh, is talking about here. Actually, during this time period, no one read to themselves, right? So no one would, would read silently in their heads. That's a, that's a Western modern thing that we do. So when you read at any point and anywhere, you would read aloud, but here, what the psalmist is saying, what he means by meditate is that you're whispering, you're murmuring under your breath to yourself, Psalm 1, blessed, how happy is the one who does not, right? So you're actually giving yourself to this. And it's, a, it's an action that happens regularly throughout the day. It's an action that actually takes place constantly. Now look back down at verse 2. When does this meditation happen? Day and night. The psalmist uses the two extremes. Right, so day and night, so it encompasses everything that's in between. At all times and in all places, this is when you're supposed to meditate. Meditation is a serious undertaking. And it has this idea of immersing ourselves in God's Word. It recalls to mind Joshua 1.8. Joshua 1.8 says, The book of instruction must not depart from your mouth you are to meditate on it day and night so that you may be carefully observing everything written in it for then you will prosper and succeed in whatever you do very similar right and so what happens here is that uh, the writer in Joshua he's saying the same thing that Psalm 1 is saying you're to meditate and give yourself to this because this is what changes you I can remember now, this has been almost 10 years ago. I went and worked at a, a Christian sports camp out in Missouri and so drove out there and uh, over the course of the summer was coaching basketball and doing different things. And I, you just had your normal schedule, right? So you had, you know, sometimes we'd be uh, swimming or doing other things. But during the day, you had lots of time and there was no TV. And so we were like, well, what are we going to do? Well, we decided we're going we're to memorize some psalms together. Let me tell you, because of, of that time frame, we were able to memorize psalms and commit them to heart and memory. And those still, even almost 10 years ago, have a deep impact on my life and in my heart. Because there were no distractions. They made us take our phones and we put them up in a way. We, couldn't, we didn't have access to them. Like we, we literally had nothing but each other, our Bibles, books, the, the students that we were coaching and and working with, that's all we had. So there were no distractions for us. We were able to commit ourselves day and night to just, hey, how's it going memorizing uh, whatever psalm it was? Hey, how's it going? You know, hey, let me, let me hear that from you today. We got to share that. We were focused. We were focused on memorizing God's Word. And so we, as a group, actually grew deeper that summer than and I'd probably say in some ways than I have my whole life. Meditation on God's Word is a transformative act in the lives of those who will give themselves to God over the world. Will you give yourself to God's Word over everything else? When we give ourselves to God's Word, we cannot stop the life change that takes place. It brings to mind Romans 12, 2. 
Do not be conformed to this age, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may discern what is good, pleasing, and the perfect will of God. Pondering God's word is a voluntary act to seek him and to let him then renew us. Meditation leads to delighting, and delighting leads to more meditation. Right? The more you do, the more you want to do it. It has this cyclical effect on us. It, it, it breeds more motivation for us when we come to God's word. And in, in the end of the day, in what you delight in, you become. What you delight in, you become. The things that you are focused on, the things that grab our attention, we are becoming like those things. Whether it's the news or social media or whatever, we can fill in the blank. Those things are forming us. What we give ourselves to, they are discipling us. And so we must give ourselves to God's word so that it is what's changing and transforming us. So that we do not become delighting in things of this world. And here's the deal. We will never find the bottom of God's word. Not until Jesus comes back. We will never figure out every passage. We will never know everything that we need to know. We're going to continue. And the Psalms are a great example of this. A lot of times when people point point others to memorize parts of the Bible, you know, we memorize some of Paul's letters because they're really succinct and they tell us what we should do and how to live. But the Psalms are where God directly speaks to our whole bodies, to our minds, to our spirits. Psalm 1 is an invitation into praying and reading and singing what it means to live with God in a broken world. What it means to give ourselves to God's Word and let it change us and wash us and clean us. When we meditate on and memorize the Psalms, we are planting our roots deeply in the life-giving water of God's Word. This is the same living water that Jesus offers to the woman at the well. The water of God's Word reveals our innermost contradictions and points us to a need outside of ourselves that we need to be restored. And the living water is not easily distracted by other things. This living water takes up residence in our hearts and begins to flow in us and through us and out of us. So, what is the product of meditating on God's Word? Look there, verse 3. It's going to bring us to our our second truth. The righteous uh, produce fruit while the wicked fade away. The righteous produce fruit while the wicked fade away. Look there, verse 3. He is like a tree planted beside flowing streams that bear fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. Whatever he does prospers. The psalmist uses the analogy to describe the outcome of those who actually give themselves to God's Word. This analogy is, he is like a tree planted. This is a living organism. This is not a channel. This is not a pass-through. Something's happening in this tree. And it actually produces something. But how does it do that? Well, the tree, the psalm says, is planted by flowing streams. Now, these flowing streams are most likely irrigation channels that someone has deliberately dug right they were in the middle east and there are not many flowing rivers in the middle east and so this was intentional they dug out these things and drew the water from uh, another source 
So the tree is both planted in the environment in a way that is healthy, and it then receives nourishment from that environment. The environment for the tree matters. I've been struck this week, probably convicted, that I haven't viewed the environment of transformation in, in a Christian's life more seriously. What, in ki- what kind of environments do you allow in your own life? What are the things seeping away, siphoning off the living water? What are the things that are coming and, and eating away at the fruit that you could produce because you are following Christ? Parents, what kind of environments are you placing your children in? What are you giving them to succeed in light of who God is and who God has made them to be? Have you placed them in an environment so that they can grow into Christ's likeness to know the gospel, give their lives to Christ, and then follow Him? The environment matters. So notice, this was an intentional planting of the tree and where to plant the tree. Right? God knows what it takes for nourishment and, to, and for growth. He is the master gardener. He's tending not just to the tree, but to the environment that's around it. To the soil. To the roots. And this draws our attention to to John chapter 15, where Jesus says, I am the vine and my Father is the gardener. And Jesus goes on, he says, I am the vine and you are the branches. Right, that God is growing something that when we give our lives to Christ, we're connected to Him. And out of Him, we produce fruit. We produce fruit. God is also like a good gardener. He's, he's pruning us. Pruning doesn't, doesn't feel very good, does it? Right? We know that then there are things in our lives that God is cutting away. He's, he's digging out of us because He knows that they are harming us. But we like to hold on and we like to, we like to squeeze and we like to not let God get to those places, do we? He's a good gardener who knows and he's trying to dig out and grow an environment that is healthy for us. We need God's help in transformation. We need God's help in transformation. We talk about making mature disciples that, you know, we're being transformed. It's the only verb that we talk about that is something happening to us because we need God to work in us. Right? The world would say that the problem is out there. The solution's in here. But the gospel says that no, the problem is in here. And the solution is outside of us. We believe that God is the one who knows what's best for us. So what's the outcome for this tree that is planted in a good environment with the right nourishment? Fruit. Fruit. We saw this in James, did we not? James says that God's word leads to righteousness. And not just righteousness, but to righteous living. Trees don't produce fruit inside of their trunks. They produce visible, tangible, touchable, edible fruit. The trees don't store up the fruit for themselves. They offer it to those who walk by. So a few thoughts about this fruit. Or about fruit in general. Fruit are distinctive. We don't plant an orange tree to get apples. That would be very discouraging, uh, very odd, right? Fruit that's produced also produces to its, according to its kind, but also to time. 
right? It, t- it takes a specific season for fruit to actually come off of the tree or off of the vine. We don't just plant a seed and then, hey, two days later we get the fruit. No, it takes time. It's intentional. So a fruit and its tree has a season. And I think what the psalmist is trying to show us is that there are seasons and a lot of time, and that's just quiet time in our lives. But this fruit is being produced and it's growing. But we're not offering anything. But those times our lives are quiet. They're not flamboyant. They're not, they're not loud. We're walking with God and we're walking with each other and so we're able to produce fruit. And lots of times we need other people to point out the fact that, hey, actually you're growing in Christ. When we pursue Him, it takes time and it takes others to show us that, hey, yeah, you are growing in Christ. And notice, too, that this tree and its fruit, they do not wither and they prosper. Right? This tree, it can withstand hardship. I read about a uh, tree this week. It's called the shepherd's tree in South Africa. Uh, And this tree, it's protected uh, by, by locals and uh, it's in a desert, so what happens is they found that this tree, uh, actually its roots, they, it doesn't uh, grow outward, it, they grow straight down into the ground, and they say they found some upwards of 300 feet into the earth. That tree is going to find water. It's going to find nourishment. Those roots have dug deep into the desert. What this means is that this tree is ready to withstand whatever comes to it. Whatever hardship, sickness, or persecution, whatever comes, this tree is prepared to produce its fruit when it's time. This tree also, it prospers, right? It has this idea of being successful, but according to God's design. We prosper as disciples when we plunge ourselves into God's word. And then a godly life is produced by that. Prospering is not getting everything we want. Prospering is not having all the dreams and all the desires that we want. Prospering is producing the fruit that God has designed. That God, we look and more like His Son. That's what He's producing in us. And it's now new and delightful. But what's the opposite of of a tree that produces fruit that God has worked to cultivate? Look at verse 4. The wicked are not like this. Instead, they are like chaff that the wind blows away. The wicked, those who have set themselves opposed to God, are not like this man or this tree planted. Rather, they are like chaff. If you don't know what chaff is, it's the husk or the skins of corn that are thrown off when they're gathering the corn uh, and for the grain. And these chaffs or skin, they have no roots, meaning they have no ability to root themselves into the ground to continue living. They are dead. They cannot uh, survive the most mundane of weather circumstances, just even the blowing wind. They can't survive. And they will be blown away. They will disintegrate. They have no permanence in this world. Do you see the issue here? There's no intentionality either. The wicked are not intentional. You do not have to be intentional to walk like the wicked do. You don't have to be intentional to walk like the wicked do. Vices come naturally to us. We don't have to seek them out. We don't have to learn them. We can just go with the flow and never know it. 
This is why we believe as a church that the Bible tells us that we are born sinful. That we are not in relationship with God. That we are not neutral. That we don't have blank slates. No, we are sinful. And so because of that, this world is easy to just go with the flow and to think that we're on the right track and actually we're on the way to destruction. We, be- we believe that all of us were born sinful and are opposed to God and His rule. And so these vices, even for those of us who are following Christ, they take hold of us like a vice grip. We must pursue habits that lead to transformation. The gospel empowers us to form habits that lead us to grow in Christ, both corporately and personally. As individuals, what are we doing to actually grow? What, what, What are the things we're putting around us? A lot of folks call these the spiritual disciplines. I like habits because habits are multipliers. What we do, what with the habits we create, whether it's reading the Bible or praying or uh, seeking to serve others, whatever it may be, whatever those habits are, they begin to compound and we begin to see God work in mighty ways in our lives. Yes, they're disciplines, but they're habits in our lives. What about you parents? What are you doing to build habits in your children's lives we as a church desire to build strong families dads what are you doing to lead your children and your wives in a way that will help them grow in Christ likeness we're not we're not asking you to to be the the preacher or the pastor what we're asking you is to lead your home you don't have to know all the answers Actually, it's a good time for you to open up the Bible, read it, sing a song, and pray with your family. You don't have to know all the answers. I don't. But you then can set up a standard of, hey, your, your children, look, they look to this time when you're reading. Ashley's been doing a great job of this. She's, uh, when, when, when I'm at work, her and Graham, they read the storybook Bible. And Graham now is asking, even when I'm there, he's asking, hey, can we read this? even at two and a half years old. And he's, he's joyous, he's excited about reading this Bible. So what are the things that we're doing to help build strong habits in our children? This is why as a church we have a disciple-making pathway because we believe it matters what we do. Not that our actions are saving us, no, but that our actions are actually reflecting the salvation that we currently have. It's intentional. It's purposeful. It's, we're doing this for a reason. Now, it can be disheartening, right? We think about all these things, these habits, these disciplines, all these things that we're, we're called to do, and we look at the world, and it seems that they're prospering. They get what they want. They have all the things that they want. So how, how, why does the psalmist say what they say here? Well, one, he's making a, a general claim, and he also understands where the future's heading. He understands where the future is heading. So how can we continue down the path of righteousness? We can trust that God knows the path of both righteousness and wickedness. Look at our third truth at verse 5. The righteous are protected while the wicked perish. The righteous are protected. Look there at verse 5. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. Remember that there's a therefore for a reason. So in light of who the righteous are, in light of who the wicked are, there will be consequences, good or bad. 
The final outcome is sure. There is no changing it. There is, there, it doesn't matter what it looks like. It doesn't matter that it looks like those people who are getting everything that we think that they want and it looks good and it looks fun, but we know that one day the outcome is going to come. The psalm now ends with what God will do. It's not, it's not only up to us. It's not only asking us to, to work towards growing in Christ. No, it is that God is going to come and there will be consequences to, for those who live in this world. They, were not, they will not be able to stand. This is because of who they are. They will not be able to sneak into the assembly of the righteous. They will not be able to stand. There will be no room for them. Right? May we remember that there will be a parting of the righteous and the wicked. Do not be fooled into believing that this stuff out in the world is better for you. Do not be fooled into thinking that that is what is better than who God is. On the day of judgment, we will be separated from the wicked and the righteous. Nothing will go unpunished. No one and no evil will skirt by on that day. So when we see that those who are living it up in this world and we feel like we are missing out and we feel like how could this evil go unpunished, there is a day when all things will be made right. Some of you have experienced extreme difficulty and hardship in your life. And, you're, and you may wonder, why has God allowed this to be? The only reason that I know is that we live in a broken world, but the hope that we have is that there's a God who will fix it and He will make it right. He will make it right. Look at verse 6. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked leads to ruin. The Lord watches. The psalmist says, He, he knows. He has experienced the way of righteousness. He also has a relationship with those who are righteous meaning God cares for us, right? The way of righteousness is what God knows well from experience. He's traveled it. He knows it. He knows the twists and turns. He knows the pathway well because he has set out to blaze a safe trail for us, for all of us who are behind him, so that we may follow him into righteousness. By, the, by contrast, the way of the wicked seeks to explore territory outside of what God has been in and, and to, he's absent from. And so what they will experience on that day of separation, they will experience a, a place of separation from God's goodness and kindness and mercy and love. They will experience destruction. And here's the thing, Jesus knows the way of righteousness. He knows the way of righteousness, so much so that he gave his own life on the cross for us. And not only does he know the way of righteousness, he experienced what sin brings into the world. He experienced what sin does to us because he had to give his own life for you and me. But in that righteousness, God raised him from the dead. The righteous, those who are in Christ, should not be worried. We should be strengthened that God knows the way. We don't have the old law. We have Christ who tends to us and cares for us and intercedes for us. We should be encouraged to continue down the path of righteousness even when things don't add up in this world. Christ is our new motivation. 
even here with the psalmist. The psalmist saying, hey, look to God's word. We have the revelation of both the Old Testament and the New Testament, which reveals Christ the Messiah. A Messiah who is not far away, but a Messiah who gave his life for you. And so we now have new motivation to walk like this, just as Pastor Ryan read earlier. That we can be given hearts of flesh and no longer hearts of stone. That Jesus actually offers himself to us, and now we have a new motivation. Why, though? The way, either righteousness or wickedness, is a chosen life path, it's a chosen direction. It will determine our destiny. If it's unchanged from wickedness, then the consequences will follow. The way of the wicked leads to ruin. Did you know, we don't see this in our English translation, the psalm starts with blessing, with happiness, and the first word and the last word is ruin. This is a matter of life and death. It's a matter of of the pathway of blessing or the pathway of ruin. This is why God gives us a command here, an imperative, to pursue righteousness. He knows that this is a life or death situation, but he doesn't just call us to something. He watches over us and tends to us just like those plants in the garden. He grows it and he helps us walk out this righteousness. We are not left to our own He is our caring master gardener. The Bible begins with a garden in Genesis chapter 1 and 2. It's beautiful. It's Eden. It has everything that we would have needed. But Adam and Eve, they decided to sin and turn away from what God wanted. And we, coming from them, we now have sin and sin entered into this world and it's broken everything. But all the way back then, In Genesis chapter 3, God said, I'm going to send a seed who will crush the head of the serpent. And so the Bible begins with a garden, but the Bible also ends with a garden in Revelation 22. So Revelation 22, what we see here, see there is a picture of a city and a garden and the uh, the flowing streams of water. That God is with his people and that there is a new garden and a new city that God has made. So no longer is there death and destruction and wickedness. There's only peace in this garden. God had to send Christ so that he could make and cultivate that new garden. It it didn't just come out out of happenstance. God had to send his own son into the world for you and me. If you are not a believer today, I'm going to ask you to think about what the consequences are from Psalm 1. These are deep and dire consequences. Your life depends on it. It matters. So much so that God would send His own Son. He loves you so much that He would send His own Son for you. And if you will submit your life to Christ, trust Him and believe in Him, you will get to experience that new garden one day. You will get to experience the beauty and the peace with God if you will submit your life to Christ. If those of us who are in Christ, 
the question still remains which way will we choose we fool ourselves in thinking that wickedness is the way or will we trust God who knows the way which path will you choose today pray with me God we need so much help we come to your word and we're encouraged and we're delighted in what we see but we know it's difficult to follow we know that without you we would not be able to walk out these things we know that there would be no way for us to walk righteously but through your word and through Christ we now are empowered in the Holy Spirit to walk out righteously to actually live righteously for those of us in the room, God, who are struggling today to, one, either give our lives to Christ, or two, struggling with sin that has entangled us for so long, will we think and ponder on your word? Will we be grown deeply out of your word so that we will produce fruit and look like your people? Because in the end, we know that there will be a separation and we know that you will protect the righteous. So God, we need you. We ask you to do these things in us. And we ask all these things in the name of Jesus and by the power of the Spirit. Amen.